Coming back from Liberty yesterday, I was listening to Francis Chan's last message as a pastor of Simi Valley, the church that he started in his apartment complex, and the Lord just really blessed that. Thousands of people had been saved, and God was leading him to transition out of that. And he he made a statement, and I put it on Twitter and Facebook for those of y'all that are on there, um, and it was this. He said, we must be willing to say, Lord... Please help me to humble myself so that you don't have to do it. Please help me to humble myself so that you don't have to do it. And just that theme of God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble is so prominent in Scripture. Everything from Nebuchadnezzar, that Babylonian tyrant who looked out on Babylon from the height of his his castle wall and said, look at this great city that I have built by the the might of my power and by the breadth of my wisdom and my, 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 me, me, me. And God said, you think you're big stuff? I'll give you seven years on grass patrol. And and you can eat grass like a beast. And at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar submitted to the power and sovereignty of God and he was totally humbled. So the reason why I wanted to mention that, that we're almost coming to the end of our series in apologetics. We started this, if my memory serves me right, the second of... January of this year, and we have covered so much stuff. I mean, I was going through the notes yesterday online, all the data and all the information. I was like, I forgot that even that I even taught this. I don't know if anybody else remembers it. We've we've gone through so much. It's been such a a knowledge driven, but hopefully a transformational driven study that I don't want us to get this idea. If I come tonight and I thoroughly ingest and memorize this information about Jehovah's Witnesses, I will, because of my knowledge of the truth, be able to influence people for Christ. Yes, knowledge certainly plays a part, but I hope that through this study, it will just bring us once again to the feet of Jesus so that we'll be able to have that changed life, that humble spirit. You know what I'm saying? That humble, broken spirit that's saying, I'm just another beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So, yes, we want to learn, we want to increase in knowledge. Scripture teaches that. Yes, we want to you know, grow in our ability to defend the truth. But at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I have not love, I am but basically a clanging symbol. Somebody walks in here with a symbol, and there's no rhyme or reason. They're just beating the daylights out of it. Now, there may be some 14-year-old that's like, yeah, it's good stuff. But, I mean, for most people, that it's just going to simply be annoying. And we pray that God would keep us from that. All right? I don't know if that's the, necessarily the best way to introduce a study on Jehovah's Witnesses, but let's never think that it's a battle of wits over wits or information over information. It's brokenness, knowing that this person is a person who God loves, who God created in His image, and we're simply trying to help them navigate through the roadblocks of lies that are in in this world. So, uh, just wanted to hopefully set the tone for as we gear this apologetic study down here in the next few weeks, but a couple um, of resources I wanted to bring tonight, and I know when you do this, uh, you usually have about a 50-50 chance of ever giving it, giving it back, getting it back. And so what I'll do is just pass this, and you can write down the information if you want to get your own copy. This right here is a short little book, The uh, Facts on Jehovah's Witnesses by John Ankerberg and John Welton. 
And also, this is a fantastic, fantastic book called Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses by Ron Rhodes. And it has basically what they will say, then what you ask, then what you say. I mean, it's almost a scripted dialogue point by point on what they believe and what they will tell you. It's almost like if you were going to enter into a boxing match, this book right here by Ron Rhodes is a detailed blueprint of everything that your opponent is going to throw at you, how to duck, how to counterpunch. So I'll go ahead and start these right here. And if if you'd like to to write down the information and and get it, um, that'd be great. So here is the main idea. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Timothy Chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 2 in verse 5. But here's the main idea that we're going to try to hammer on this week and then the next session we study Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's as follows. Grace is not an opportunity to earn salvation. Grace is the opportunity to receive salvation. Right? And as we'll see... Jehovah's Witnesses believe, they will tell you, sure we believe in the grace of God, but in their understanding, grace is an opportunity for you to start being good enough. And if you're good enough, then you'll earn salvation by your reaching perfection. Whereas we see in the Bible over and over again, grace has nothing to do with works. In fact, it's totally opposed to works. Anybody remember a a scripture text that may deal with that? What's that? By grace are you saved. Yeah. Ephesians 2.8.9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the foundation of the gospel. So once again, this takes us back to several months ago, a study that we did on definition before discourse. When they say we believe in God's grace, we say what do you mean by grace? Because if we're not thinking carefully, we can accept that, and then we're talking past each other. So, the beginnings of the Jehovah's Witnesses is it was started in the 1870s by Charles Taze Russell. Started with a couple of hundred people and grew to the thousands and now into the millions. But there uh, is a group called the Watchtower Society. And if you've ever, and by the way, let me just take a little straw poll here. How many of you have ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your house? Let, let me see your hand. Okay. If there's anybody not raising your hand, you're that person that never opens the door. Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> deep in the woods. All right. Signs that say, don't worry about the dog. Beware of the owner. You know, places like that. All right. Um, but even if you, they missed you when they came by, they will give you literature, and on the very bottom, you'll see the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And the leaders of that are the ones who give the dictates on what is the truth and what is not. But here's what the Bible teaches as far as the priesthood of the believer. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now here's the question based upon the charge that we get as Bible-believing Christians all the time. And it's this. If men wrote the Bible to gain power, why would they invent an idea of freedom in Christ? And here's the way the charge normally goes. You can't trust the Bible because from Genesis to Revelation, people have always tried to use religion to get power, to get money, 
to get influence. So men wrote the Bible, and if men write something, then it's obviously corrupt. So therefore, you can't trust the Bible. Well, there's many responses to that. We could use all sorts of things. But one one question that we may ask is say, okay, if that's true, then why do we find verses like this? Why do we find this huge, beautiful tapestry going through the New Testament on freedom in Christ? It's freedom in Christ. The priesthood of the believer. Now, God does give pastors and elders and churches to teach and to lead. But here's the thing. Every single one of you don't need to go through me to get to God. Now that's a huge, huge difference from Roman Catholicism, from the Mormon quote-unquote church, and from the Jehovah's Witnesses Group Society Church as well. Anybody think of another, another response to this, shooting from the hip? When people say, if men wrote the Bible to gain power, then how can we trust the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just, just because God uses a person to write it, this is not, this, this, all illustrations break down ultimately, right? So we've got to be really careful about using illustrations, uh, visual object lessons, which I'm about to do to illustrate certain things. But I can pick up this pen and I can write something. Now, what wrote? Was it the pen or was it me? Well, the pen was the instrument of the author. And the Bible tells us that God spoke through holy men of old who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And even more so, we can go to all those other lessons that we looked at and look at the evidence, the textual evidence. Does the Bible contradict itself internally? No. How does the Bible uh, square with ancient archaeology? It does. It's crazy. We're discovering things all the time. We even found something uh, archaeologically about David and his reign, where before all we had was like one rock, just an inscription on a rock. A Stella that said that David existed. Outside of the Bible, there was nothing. So we're constantly finding things that support what the Bible has always taught to be true. Um, so here's a question. What attracts people to Jehovah's Witnesses? Now, we can never get into people's hearts and minds totally, but here are three main observations. Number one, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim to offer divine guidance. You want answers for your life? We've got answers. Another one would be, uh, that Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim to provide genuine solutions to life's problems. Number three, people who have stresses uh, about moral and family values. Those questions right there. People's need for God's guidance in their life. Solutions to life's problems. Concern about the de- disintegration of the family and morality and culture. What comes to mind that may be a good answer for all that? Yeah, Christianity, Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, transformation from the inside out. But here's the question. Since there's there's well over, I think we'll come to it in just a minute, but one or two million Jehovah's Witnesses in the United States, over seven million worldwide. So these questions that often lead people into the Jehovah's Witnesses, what does that say about the Bible-believing evangelical church in America that several million people looking for answers apparently didn't find it to where the answers should be? What do you think? Oops. Shame on us. Yep. What's that? I think we're falling short. Right? And unfortunately... A lot of the people from life in church look like people outside. You 
Great point. Yeah, obviously you guys don't have the answers because you're cutting each other's throats in church and there's more drama at church than it's on Jerry Springer and you guys don't get along and I get along better with my lost friends drinking beer after work. So, you know, to Hades with you all, excuse my French, people will say that, you know, I don't need the church. I don't because I've seen the church. So really, when we look at these cults, we're like, these cults are so bad. Yes, they are. All right. They're so jacked up theologically. Sure. But have we in the church done what Jesus called us to do and to love one another in truth, in purity of doctrine? But then Jesus says, all men will know you're my disciples because of your programs or for your, for your, because of your love for one another. And so this, this is, this is an indictment in a sense on just the church in the U.S. Uh, central beliefs. Number one, God's guidance only comes through the Watchtower Society. If you're taking notes, you may want to just jot down or take a mental note that one of the clear signs of a cult is they say we are the only ones who have the truth. We are the only ones going to heaven. I love what Billy Graham said to response in response to a question when they said, Mr. Graham, do you think that Baptists will be the only ones in heaven? And he says, I'm even narrower than that. I don't think all Baptists are going to make it to heaven. And he was speaking tongue-in-cheek because you obviously don't have to be Baptist to accept Jesus as your Savior and to repent and be born again. But that's, that's something that should cause us to be very, very, very disturbed if somebody says that only we have the truth. Number two. Only Jehovah's Witnesses have the truth, and only they are God's people. Number three, therefore, all other denominations are false and controlled by Satan. Now, if you've been in some churches, you may think that that's a little bit closer to the truth. Um, Central Beliefs. This is from Watchtower Magazine, March 1st, 1979. Got this from the Anchorberg book. Quote, we belong to no earthly organization. We adhere to that heavenly organization. All the saints now living or that have ever lived during this age belong to our church organization. Such are all one church and there is no other recognized by the Lord. Pretty open-minded. Some questions. Why did Jehovah's Witnesses... Not serve in the military, salute the flag, celebrate holidays, or accept blood transfusions. If you didn't know that, uh, there have been issues legally about Jehovah's Witnesses' parents who will not allow their child who needs a blood transfusion to have one. And here is the reasoning for abstaining from all that. They argue, quote, Do you want to be a part of Satan's world, or are you for God's new system? Getting out of Babylon the Great, the world empire of false religion, also means having nothing to do with the religious celebrations of the world. Okay. Response. Jehovah's Witness has just given you that explanation as to why they're not involved in these things. What may be some ways that we could respond? And, and before, before you answer, they're basically saying that any involvement in government... Okay, is corroboration and involvement and support of this satanic world order. So all, all authorities are ordained by God. All authorities that exist are ordained by God. Okay, 
See, you're using what Jesus said, Leanna. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and isn't that what Jesus said to Pilate when Pilate asked Jesus, you know, well, why don't your servants fight? I mean, what, what's, and Jesus says, you know, you would have no authority if it were not given to you by my Father. So that, that's a huge concept of the sovereignty of God, which we'll, we'll get to probably at the end of this. But good response. What, what else? Okay, right. God's new system hasn't taken effect yet. And speaking of eschatology, end time study, there is the here and now, like God, when a person is saved, he sets up residence and his kingdom takes root in their heart. But there's the here and now, but there's also the not yet, right? When Jesus comes back and everything will be um, bowing the knee. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to, that's a great point. I don't, have y'all heard about that originally? Jesus was supposed to return in 1914. And then um, kind of World War World War I and you know, millions of people died. And I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus' return was. So Jesus was said to have returned spiritually. And then they said he would return again. It's just been uh, failed prophecy after failed prophecy after failed prophecy. And then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that next session, but that's a, that's a great point. Um, here's, one, here's one way that we could talk uh, about blood transfusions. Uh, the question would be, eating blood is condemned in the Bible, right? Old Testament and New Testament, right? Don't drink blood, abstain from sexual immorality, don't eat stuff sacrificed to idols. That, that, that's what the New Testament reiterates uh, in regards to uh, this Old Testament morality. But... Here's a question, and this is for them to answer. How is receiving a blood transfusion and drinking blood the same thing? It's just, that's that's not just apples and oranges. That's like locomotives and apples. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't, and I don't really know, maybe some of y'all can break that down in greater detail, but that would put the burden of proof on them in a polite and a loving way to say, I'm having, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm having trouble with this, but how are, you know, how is blood transfusions and drinking blood and a pagan type of ritual the same thing? And it's up to them to prove it to you. And I don't believe in luck, but good luck. Uh, another question. What are the fallacies of this reasoning? This reasoning being the world is controlled by Satan. Therefore, involvement in anything in the world is in coh- being in cahoots with Satan. What's what's a flaw with that type of? Yeah, great point. Yeah, we're we're living here. We're a part of this world. We we do pay taxes. We use the roads. Um, some people, I guess Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll, they'll send their kids to school, right? Public school. They're involved in that system and, and so forth and so on. Good. What up? Okay. So we're, yeah, that's a great point. Did you guys hear that? That, that we're enjoying our religious freedom because, in, in some cases, because of the military. And... The hard truth is that war does solve some things. A just war. A just war. And that's a whole other discussion for another time. But that's a great point. Yeah, to say you're able to practice this because someone took up arms and put themselves in harm's way. Great point. Anything else? Fallacies with this. One, one way, just, this is just a question I put here. Um, why can't you be in the world and not of it? 
I think they're assuming that if you're involved in anything in the world, then you're automatically in cahoots with the world. But that's why does that have to be the case? Romans 13, this would be a great text to point them to, absolutely legitimizes military service and law enforcement under the rule of law. Like uh, Mark and Pam, okay, Mark's a law enforcement officer. If Mark was required at some point in the future, I want you to go to and get your deputies and get your guys and start <coughs> confiscating Bibles in Franklin County, Mark would be freed by God's word to say no to that order. Right? It's not under the rule of law. It's not in accordance with God's law. But, you know, Jesus, in one of his sermons, he didn't tell the soldiers, stop being a soldier. He said, just don't take anything by force. Don't abuse your authority. And what about the centurion? Remember Jesus? The centurion's servant that was sick and he was about to die. He was ill. And Jesus said, I can come. And the centurion said, don't worry about it. You just say the word. And I know that he'll be healed. And Jesus says, such faith have I seen in this this Gentile, this Roman, this uncircumcised, this, this outsider than in all Israel. So, to take that line of reasoning, it's just, it's just simply false. And furthermore, I think it is so good today with the emphasis that being, that's being given to young people on you can transform even Hollywood from the inside out if you have the desire, like my brother, to go into film, to go into the creative arts, to go into areas that have been very dark why should Christians be afraid of it? Do we, do we really believe that Jesus is the light of the world? You know? I mean, if we have a light, and darkness is the absence of light, whether it be, whether it be India, or Africa, or a rough place in Franklin County, or an uppity place in Franklin County to where people think they're too good for Jesus and they don't need Him, if we have the light, then why do we need to fear the darkness? So we can definitely be in the world, but not of the world. And, and I just want to say this, and I hope that you know this comes across right and nobody listening to the podcast misunderstands it, but um, I hope you hear my heart on this. Jehovah's Witnesses, the whole, the whole deal, according to my reading of it, is an epic fail in, in clear thinking. Okay? Now, are we saying that Jehovah's Witnesses are stupid people? No. But the system is so flawed, and it's really so easy to take it down because they say that they're accurately interpreting the Bible. Whereas even in Mormonism, they bring in the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon. I mean, like, sci-fi stuff. On It's just, it's just bizarre, you know, like... Those of you ladies, if you get married to Muslim, or excuse me, to a Mormon uh, husband, you can look forward to endless celestial childbearing. You know, I mean, praise the Lord. Who wouldn't want that, right, ladies? You know, it's, it's, it, it honestly boggles the imagination. It's just so bizarre. But with Jehovah's Witnesses, it's so I think easy to show how it logically breaks down. But here's the thing. It's never just an issue of logic and reason. Okay? Most people don't do what they do today out of logic or reason. And if we could take a step back, in many cases that can include us as well. We do things out of emotions. I think sometimes people come out of of Christian, evangelical, Bible-believing backgrounds, but something happens. They get hurt. They get wounded, they get disenfranchised with the church, and they go looking for a group of people that will give them community and will show them love. And some people find that in cults. 
So when we use these, these questions that kind of undercut their claims, let's remember we're not just speaking to a logical machine because that's not what any of us are. We're speaking to a human who, yes, has logic and, yes, in some cases can use it effectively, but it's not just there. Does that make sense? I, I don't want us to come across like, you know, by the way, we enjoy you guys giving those arguments. We can just, boom, chop them down. You know, they're so easy. We don't want to give off that impression at all. But here's a few points of their theology. Uh, one would be a denial of the Trinity. Here's what Charles Taze Russell, their founder, said, quote, The Christian God was the devil himself. Christian God being the God of the Bible, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They say that it's a pagan uh, myth. So the claim is that the Trinity is unreasonable, so therefore it cannot be true. Anybody want to be honest and say the Trinity is a little bit hard to understand? Okay. All right. And some people say, no, I got the Trinity back pocket. I mean, no, no problem. Ace up my sleeve. You can call me the Trinity man, the Trinity woman. Those, I guarantee you, here's the thing. There are people, I mean, people in church history, brilliant minds. They didn't have access to libraries and to computers and files and Google searches and Bible gateway and commentaries, but they've written these brilliant, brilliant works. I mean, Augustine on the Trinity, brilliant work on that. But even still, some of our best minds is something that we can't fully understand and grasp. But then again, when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about God who created everything from nothing and keeps everything in existence. I mean, how do you create something from nothing? Just let that boggle the mind for a few minutes. So sometimes I think it's funny when we're just like, you know what, I just, this Trinity thing, I'm not able to totally understand it, so therefore it must not be true. Really? So therefore what we're saying is if I can't fully understand it, then it must not be true. Well, if we have to understand everything before it's true, speaking for me, I will live in a very, very small world. In fact, I probably shouldn't use electricity because I can read books about it. But we'll look at an illustration here in just a few moments. So here's, here's a possible response to this when they say that the Trinity is unreasonable. We can say, just because we can't fully understand something doesn't make it untrue or unreasonable, unless we're assuming that we have the capacity to fully understand everything. And let that sink in. Just because we can't understand it doesn't make it true. And uh, this is kind of a nerdy example, but um, Ben, we've talked about this stuff before. I love Ben. We're, we, we, we can geek out. All right. So uh, it's awesome. Awesome. Um, this is something, if you ever studied light, uh, scientists have had issues and questions on is light a particle or is it a wave? And they've done all sorts of tests. But here's, here's a statement from an article uh, in regards to light, and it's, and it's this. Don't you all like the cool light picture up there? I was like, that's cool. Just put it up there. No words. All right. But here's some words. This illustration shows the dual nature of light, which acts like both particles and waves. You see, that doesn't make sense exactly. So when you, when you see it on these quantum uh, magnifiers and so forth, it's a particle and a wave. It acts like two different entities at the same time. In a new experiment reported in November 2012, researchers observed light photons acting like both particles and waves simultaneously. And if you've done any reading on that, that just makes no sense at all. 
So the point here is that just because we don't understand everything about light doesn't mean that we deny light, right? We understand what it is, but as far as what it functions and how it works together, we don't know. We understand that God is real, that He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but we don't understand sometimes how exactly and precisely those things work together. Um, But if you'd like to do some study on that, uh, we do have, it should be in your notes, we did a whole session on this a couple of years ago, and you can go go study that um, if that will help you. So here is one of the more bizarre aspects of Jehovah's Witnesses. It is, is Jesus Michael the Archangel? And the Jehovah's Witness claim is as follows. Jesus received immortality as a reward for his faithful course of action on earth. This is because, quote, any failure on his part would have meant eternal death and extinction for him. Responses. Or there's so many that come to mind, it's hard to get them out. Well, they said he that he could have, he he could have he could have failed, <coughs> epically. But he was mortal before he came here. What's that? He was immortal before he got here. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. It, it, it's not like Jesus, you know, showed up. It's like, all right, guys, pops his suspenders, ready for class. <coughs> no, Jesus. Jesus was and is is the Son of God. Uh, here's one response, is that Hebrews 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 8, the Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That doesn't mean that Jesus is a stick in the mud or that he is lame. It means that everything of who he is, all of the beauty of his character, his love, it doesn't fade. His mercy doesn't fade. His sense of justice will never be diminished. It means that Jesus is and has been always constant. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was tempted, but yet Jesus never sinned. What types of problems do you think it is for Jesus according to how we read the Bible, have the possibility of failing. And because he did a good job, he earned eternal life. That would put a question on the deity. I mean, he was God. Mm-hmm. So if he could have failed, he wouldn't have been perfect. He would have been God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of puts Jesus on the level of where the Jehovah's Witness leaders say that we should be, and it's trying to earn our salvation. Jesus never needed to earn his salvation because he was and is sinless, right? Jesus was born um, of a virgin. Uh, Jude, there's only one chapter, so this is verse 9. It speaks of Michael the archangel. Um, there's another reference in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, that says Michael is one of the great princes. Does anybody know what the word Michael, or what, what it means, the name? It's a question. Who is like God? It's an awesome, awesome name, Michael. It means that, you know what? The question that cannot be answered, who is like God? You're never going to find someone that's like God. There is no one like God. Awesome name. 
Um, but here is where the bulk of their argument um, is based upon saying that Jesus uh, is Michael the archangel and vice versa. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. The Bible says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command or a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay. So according to this verse, Jesus is Michael the archangel. Y'all get that? Y'all didn't see that? That's because you're narrow-minded. <laughs> Question. Does this verse, this is, this is a, a, a good response, you say in a loving manner, you know, does this verse say that Jesus is Michael the archangel? Clearly. Yeah, it just it just says the voice, and so once again, um, this comes from Francis Chan. I so appreciate how how just honest and open he is. He says one of the best things that he's in, he's ever learned when you're dealing with cults is you can go this route that we're going tonight, and I think it's important for us as Christians to know how to respond. He says, but I just take my Bible and I and I I, I say to those guys, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you just pick this up. And you just started reading it to say, you know what? I'm not going to read any interpretation books, hermeneutics. I'm just going to open this book. And whatever it clearly teaches, I'm going to take that at face value. He said, if you took the Bible and read it in that way, would you come to the conclusions that you have about what the Bible teaches? And he says, in most of those situations, that they say no. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses, as we'll cover next session, they have their own Bible that's been, quote, accurately interpreted. And just a little note, there's no reputable New Testament or Old Testament scholar in the world that will agree with them. We're talking about people who believe the Bible is the Word of God, and atheistic, I'll just say it, atheistic German scholars, all right? They study the Bible as literature. They don't believe what the Bible teaches, but they'll say that's not how you accurately translate it at all. All across the theological spectrum, no one who actually knows how to translate Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic will agree with that. But if your orders are coming from the Watchtower Society or if they're coming from the Mormon church, then that's really your authority. This is simply whatever they say that it is. It's not what it says it is. Um, the verse doesn't say that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Another question is, does the Lord come down alone, or um, could he be accompanied by his angels? Just a question. Once again, you're in conversation with a person, you're not you know, giving them a lecture. You know, the verse says that the Lord will come down himself from heaven with a loud command or shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is speaking about the rapture, the second coming, whatever, wherever you stand on that issue, God is coming to do something big. Well, why couldn't it be that he's just coming with his angels? And and then another question would be, um, if angels are the servants of God, which we know that they are, okay, they're, they're ministering agents of God, then why couldn't God use Michael to announce his coming? I mean, why couldn't the text clear, without getting into the Greek, okay, but why couldn't it be that God just says, Michael, I want you to announce my coming, and you just blast that trumpet, you give that shout. But one thing the verse doesn't say is that Michael is um, the archangel. Here is uh, their statement. Quote, The angel Michael was changed into the mortal man Jesus. Okay? So Mr. J.B., 
You said that Jesus always has been. Michael was changed into Jesus. All right, got that? Thus ceasing to be an angel. Later, the man Jesus was changed into an improved and immortal version of the angel Michael. This happened when God recreated the man Jesus after his death. So this is kind of like an episode of the mighty Morphin Power Rangers, okay? Getting changed and changed back and transformed. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses also deny the physical or the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, teaching instead that when God recreated Jesus, he made him an immortal angel. Jesus no longer existed, and Michael had no access to Jesus' earthly body. And Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, said, and I quote, The man Jesus is dead, forever dead. Where do they get on? Well, and, and that, that's a good question. Where, where, do they, where do they get this stuff? Um, just, yeah. Yeah, I think at the very, at the very root of it, let's, let's, let's take a, let's take an idea. If the Bible is true, and there is a being such as Satan, okay, let's say we're talking to an unbeliever, alright, we're not gonna drop the hammer on him just, just yet. So let, let's just imagine if Satan exists, then what would Satan want to do? He would want to use everything in his power to pull people away from the central fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that forgiveness and salvation comes only through faith in Him. You can do that many different ways. But if you can tell people that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says, then people will actually think they're following the Bible and they're believing that Jesus is an angel. There's an old heresy called Arianism, not to be confused with the, the Arian idea of the Nazis, but the Arians, would they taught things such as Jesus is not fully God. But none of those groups ever went to the point to say that Jesus is an angel. Does anybody know the point of the book of Hebrews? From your studies? He's better than. Exactly. The whole point is that Jesus is better. He's more than an angel. Jesus and only Jesus, like that song praise band sang several months ago, Jesus, only Jesus is deity. Only through him is there salvation. That's it. But if you can convince people that Jesus is an angel, and the way that you get to heaven is by you taking that opportunity of grace to better yourself, and then without having them drink blood and join the local witches' satanic coven, you have distracted them and put a wall between them and the only one who can save them, and that is Jesus. So really, where do they get this stuff? I think the brilliance of demons. And I know that people, I, no, I, if, if this is true, and Satan is real, then, because the thing is, Sue, when you read, and you all know that, when you read the New Testament, you don't come to these conclusions. When you read the Old Testament, you don't come to the conclusions. Like when you're looking in Daniel chapter 10 and there's spiritual warfare and so forth and Michael the Archangel, you're not saying, there is the pre-incarnate Jesus right there. Because it's not in the text. This is an example of why I think that Bible teaching, expository preaching, where when we teach the Bible, we take a passage of Scripture and we draw our information from that passage of Scripture. We look at what comes before it. We look at what comes after it so that we don't take ideas and try to push them into the mold of Scripture. We try to take Scripture and let it mold us. So 
Um, that's eisegesis is the process of reading into the Bible, whereas exegesis is taking out of the Bible and, and learning and extrapolating the content that's found in the Bible. First uh, Timothy chapter two verse five, which is our theme verse for tonight, says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Plain and simple. Okay, it's only through Jesus. How many times have I said that tonight? A lot, but that's the point here. Uh, one of the big questions, and we may be able to knock this out, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, will only the 144,000 make it to heaven? Jehovah's Witnesses teach that only 144,000 will actually make it to heaven. And that um, is based upon Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14, and we'll read some of those verses in a few minutes. But according to Revelation chapter 14, the ones that the text is speaking about, they're all male, okay? They're all male virgins, and they're all Jewish male virgins, and also they're Jewish male virgins who have no lie on their lips, okay? So if these passages are saying what the Jehovah's Witnesses say they do, then here's what we have. There are no women or Gentiles in heaven. Why? Because if it's only limited to the 144,000, it is 144,000 Jewish male virgins. Virgins. And when you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, just bring that out and let it sit. Because this goes back to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So many mistakes in clear reasoning and logic that they assume, oh, there's 144,000 listed in these two texts, and therefore there must be 144,000. But what does the text say about the identity of those people? And most of the Jehovah's Witnesses that have come to my house and places that I've lived, a majority of those have been ladies. Have you noticed that? And I know it's not, you know, a universal. But just break that down. Open up your Bible. You know, have it, you know, some people, they're, they're really concerned about people breaking in. They've got like the Glock, you know, on the nightstand. They've got the 12-gauge pump over here. You know, the Tech 9 on the top of the, you know, refrigerator. Just, just have a Bible somewhere close. And just, just seriously, I think this would, would put a rock in their shoe. Because there can be the tendency for us. We want so bad for people to be saved. And that's, that's, we need that. We want people to be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. But in most occasions, it may be that God has put us there, not to necessarily win the war in that 30-minute session, but to simply put a Jesus rock in their shoe. Okay? To just drop that little rock and say, you know what, I appreciate you guys. You know, you, can't, you cared enough for me to come and talk to me. But I, I have a question, and let me just turn to my Bible here. Um, where is there any way for you, or people of your gender, if you're talking to a lady, to ever get to heaven? Uh, here's just a little basic math. <clears throat> 1.2 million plus Jehovah's Witnesses in the U.S., which is, from my background in mathematics, more than 144,000. And there is 7.6 million plus Jehovah's Witnesses worldwide. And that's over the limit. So here is another probing question. 
what chance do you think you'd have? Because number one, you have to basically reach perfection to get into heaven. But it kind of looks like if there's more than that, that are working towards that end, then God's got to grade on, grade on some type of a curve. But more perfect people get it as opposed to those who are not. So whether, I don't know if, if y'all realize this, but when those people come to your house leaving you literature, they're trying to earn their way to heaven. And that alone should break our, should break our hearts for them. But here's what Revelation chapter 7 verses, 7, verses 9 through 17 teach. I'm going to try to walk right through this. The Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing where? Before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, where, where is that? It's in heaven. Exactly right. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, this is so awesome. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. And Amen literally means, let it be, so be it, I agree. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Once again, the two qualifiers for this group is they were from every nation, every ethnicity, and they were without number. I said to him, sir, you know, that's funny. This is John. He's just blown away by all this. And he's asked this question. I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore... They are before the throne of God in heaven and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall, this is, this is beautiful. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This beautiful passage from God's word comes immediately after the text that Jehovah's Witnesses use to say there will only be 144,000 in heaven. And we can just say to them out of love, let's just read a few verses further. Then you can break down the concept of the one that they're around. This is Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. Not an angel, but the one who came to die for our sins. And we'll close here, and I think that this should, once again, this should break our hearts for those people that are coming to our doorstep to try to earn their salvation. There's actually three different classes of people, of Jehovah's Witnesses. The first class would be those 144,000 that are good enough to make it to heaven. Then second class, this almost sounds like an airline flight, and I'm not being facetious, I'm not trying to be funny, but there's the VIPs, and then there's economy class, and economy class sub-C. Second class are people who live on the new earth in physical bodies and they are ruled over by Jesus, Michael, and the 144,000. Ruled over by those people that went out more Saturdays than you. Third class, 
non-Jehovah's Witnesses who have been good enough that they get a second chance after death. They will be recreated and live on the earth in the new millennium. And if they reach perfection during this time, they will reach life beyond it. So this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 turned on its head. For by grace are you saved through faith. Here's the, here's the concept. Jehovah's Witnesses understand grace as the opportunity to earn your salvation. But the point of our talk tonight is that grace is not an opportunity to earn salvation. It's an invitation to receive salvation. What Jesus has done for us. We will pick this up next time, um, the discussion on Jehovah's Witnesses and hell. But something I'd like to leave you with, and just think about this tonight as you, as you go to bed. How does this understanding of grace, if you were Jehovah's Witnesses, witness, how would that shape your understanding and your relationship with God? How would it affect your relationship with God? Knowing that the only way you could get close to Him is if you climb that ladder and climb it better than others. As opposed to, God is the one who pursued us and bought us and saved us because He is good. And while we were still sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us and He loved us.